Hello? Joe's mortuary. You stab him, we slap him. Sorry, I'm late. Okay, I already called another girl. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Queer Core Podcast. I'm your host, August Bernadiku, a 26-year-old gay historian. When I was 14 years old, I realized that there was a tremendous lack of information about the origins of the queer community. It was then that I decided to start recording interviews with the activists who built it. Since then, I've done hundreds of interviews. I want to save and spread the stories of the fathers, mothers, sisters, and brothers of gay liberation. The Queer Core Podcast is a celebration of my interviews, featuring both archival and new recordings. This podcast is an opportunity for activists to tell their stories in their own words, to tell them for their first time, to tell them for their last time, and to tell them to the world. This first episode features my friend, Rumi Misabu, an original coquette. Who is Rumi Misabu? It's a guy I grew in the 60s. The Coquettes were a glitter-clad, gender-bending, hippie performance troupe from San Francisco. They were an overnight sensation and quickly gained national press. Much more than bearded drag queens, they were high-action, out-front, out-of-the-closet entertainers. The satiric cutting edge of the first wave of gay liberation. I like to say we were like the uh, little rascals doing Busby Berkeley on acid. Rumi joined the Coquettes when he was 20 years old. While he was only a Coquette for two years, their spirit stayed with him. For the next 35 years of his life, Rumi lived completely underground. His only form of ID was an expired library card. I know I tuned in. I know I turned on. And I know I dropped out. But everyone else dropped back in. Before we go any further, I'd like to thank our partner, Five Burrows Brewery. After a long day at work, the first thing I grab in my fridge is a delicious, refreshing, hoppy lager. Run to your nearest store with taste, or use your favorite online delivery app and pick up a beverage by Five Burrows Brewery. So turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is the first episode of the Queer Core Podcast. I first met Rumi when I was 18 years old. It was a dark, cold June day in San Francisco. I went to his apartment and I thought I was lost. A man with long, natty, unconditioned, and unkempt hair answered the door. He was wearing a nurse's gown and there was a gold dildo on the table. I wasn't lost. Fast forward eight years and I have over 300 hours of recorded interviews with Rumi. You might think a radical queer like Rumi was born in some part of miserable America. Well, he's actually straight out of Hollywood. Tinseltown, baby. I had just graduated from two-year college at L.A. City College. And I was living in a foot of the Hollywood Hills with who would become the actress, Cindy Williams from Laverne and Shirley. But she was nobody then. And she was supporting me. She'd get me a job occasionally as a busboy at the International House of Pancakes or something, but I couldn't keep a job. I was just tripping my brains out. One day, Rumi was tripping his brains out and stumbled to Hollywood Boulevard. He saw a movie that forever changed his life, She Freak, starring Claire Brennan and directed by Byron Mabe. This is the story of Jade Cochran, a country girl who knew there had to be something better than waiting tables in a greasy roadside stand. It was a new film about an attractive little blonde bimbo who's schlepping burgers at some greasy spoon in Texas. Who the hell do you think you are, anyway? 
I know who I am. I'm nobody. Just like you. And up drives a, a sleazy older man who's on his way from town to town promoting the circus. And he says, hey, girl, you want a job? So she quits, gets in the car with him, and they go to the next town to promote the circus. When the carnival came to town and left, Jade left with it. And right away, the owner of the circus's son and the lion tamer both start lusting after her. Right away, right away. Yes. She's so hot that they fight each other and they end up killing each other both times. And then the owner, who says, oh, wretch, oh, wretch, takes a hankering to her and asks her to marry him. And she does. And on their wedding night, while they're fucking, he has a heart attack and dies on top of her, leaving her to be the circus owner. I'm starting a whole new life. And I ain't going to remember the old one. And she says, as the first order of business, I'm getting rid of the freaks. And this is their livelihood. This is their livelihood. They come at her, and they cut off both arms and both of her legs and throw her into a pit of snakes, and she becomes a star attraction. And when I saw this on LSD, I went back home, and I left Cindy Williams a note and said... I can't take it anymore. And got on a Greyhound bus and moved to Berkeley. I'm starting a whole new life. I ended up living with a lesbian poet, my first house at Berkeley, in a water tower on San Pablo Avenue, in back of a hippie free store run by bikers, a, a, a bike gang called the Gypsy Jokers. That in-person interview was right when he was in the throes of his recently diagnosed cancer. He was barely breathing through a machine and gasping in anticipation of the story's end. It was off-the-wall stories like deserting the future star Cindy Williams, freaking out on acid, and then living in a water tower that made me need to know more about Rumi. His story hadn't been documented and I knew I had to be the one that preserved his legacy. Rumi picked the title for his biography, Trolling for Dick in Argentina. I know what you're thinking, but I promised him. His alternative title was, I've never been penetrated. I never wanted to be famous. I wanted to be infamous, more like a cult figure. A famous person can't even do their own shopping, or an infamous person can, but I can't even do my own shopping now because I'm disabled. That's Cockhead Bambi Lake singing the Cockhead original Jaded Lady. I'm a faded lady without a sense of humor, but Jaded Lady takes it. She takes it lying down. The Cockheads were founded by George Harris, aka Hibiscus. Hibiscus was a mysterious and magnetic figure in San Francisco's hippie culture, taking to the streets in vintage dresses and flamboyant makeup. Along with a full beard and long Jesus-like hair, Hibiscus quickly attracted like-minded queer men and women who wanted to join in on his gender-bending, acid-drenched way of life. I can't tell where I met Hibiscus. He was just everywhere. He was a vision. It could have been on the bus. It could have been at Land's End, you know where that is. 
Yep. Used to run there. It could have been at the palace in the lobby because we would go to our theater before we performed there to see midnight movies. Back then, sex was like a handshake. Man and the coquettes. Boyfriends were community property. If you brought a boyfriend, a new boyfriend, into the coquette house, you sleep with him the first night. But then you never see him again for a week or two, and he'd still be in the house. The Cockettes began performing at the Palace Theater in the winter of 1969. Propelled by the playful absurdity of the psychedelic movement, the troupe performed outlandish musicals, parodying the smaltzy films from the 1930s and 40s, but with a crude, queer, gender-fucked bent. We weren't just a bunch of squishy faggots, which young... People to this day who haven't done their homework think we were. They think we were a 60s band, but we weren't a band. We were just a, a troop of people, and we weren't just all guys. It included women, straight guys in, in dresses, a baby, just everything, everything under the kitchen sink. And I also realized now that anyone could be a cockhead. All you needed to do was just show in the audience and jump on stage and become one forevermore. We resented all the theatrical norms that are held sacred in the theater. We resented direction. We resented choreography. We resented charging money. There is only flesh here in the night. With their newfound fame came notoriety. The Coquettes were the first bearded drag queens to get national press. Groups in their image, children of the Coquettes, sprouted out across America. Their impact was immediate and inescapable. We didn't know how political we were uh, because we had no need for rhetoric, but it was the gay underground press that made us these political darlings that we were so anti-establishment. We didn't think about that. We were just out to have a good time. Our shows might have been interpreted politically, but they were really just excuses to have a party, find boyfriends, and to get laid. You were on the cover of Rolling Stone? No, I was going to be, actually. Okay, uh, what happened? Another time, but I got bumped for, I think, Tina Turner, that's right. In that picture of me smoking the pipe with a clown, and they ended up selling subscriptions on a quarter-page ad, saying, hey, kids, turn your granny on to a your subscription to Rolling Stone. Someone called me up and alerted me and said, oh, did you see the Rolling Stone? You should go buy it and look at page 13. And there I was, selling subscriptions. I said, how dare them? And everyone tells me, you could sue, you could sue, you could sue. They said, better yet, I have a better plan. I was about to do I Did Tina for my farewell concert at the Committee Theater on Broadway and North Beach before I went to New York. And I thought, what a great way to get publicity. So I had pictures of me as Tina, I took my favorite one by David Wise, and I had somebody, probably David Wise, make a quarter-page ad, the same size as their ad, and unannounced with no appointment, in drag, wearing culottes, women's culottes, and a big, floppy uh, straw hat, went down to a Lordstone headquarters on Brannan Street, south of Market, and without an appointment, walked in the offices and asked to speak to John Winner. No, 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 Jan's not in today. Well, I said, then I'll wait here. Call him and tell him he better get his ass down here. So Jan Winner was actually there, and they kept making excuses. I said, well, I'm not going anywhere. Finally, he came out. He invited me into his office, and I sat down with him. I said, you used my photo without telling me, without signing a release, 
So I said, I really need a, some kind of attraction or compensation here. And I'm not really looking for money, but I am looking for justice. So plop, I plop on the table my quarter page ad. And I said, in two weeks' time, I'm about to play Tina Turner at the City Theater on Broadway. And look at here, here's a camera-ready quarter page ad of my show. I want you to run this for your charge in your paper next week. And they did it. The Conquets were only around for a few years, but their legacy endures. At a time when gay people were being arrested for existing, thrown into mental institutions, and denied a place at church, the Conquets were out in the streets, out in your face, and out of the closet. To get an example of their out-thereness, here are some of their play titles. Gone with the showboat to Oklahoma. Tinsel tarts in a hot coma. Journey to the Center of Uranus, which featured Divine singing, A crab on your anus means you're in love. Madame Butterfly, which they couldn't book into a theater, so they performed in the streets of Chinatown to an enthusiastic crowd and fake Cantonese. And of course, their wildly successful play, Pearls Over Shanghai. Well, here is Rumi singing a disco remix of his big hit from the play, White Slavery. White Slavery, out of every door we be. White Slavery, through every smile, there gleams sweet mystery in history. Who'd have thunk that bearded drag queens weren't PC? It wasn't always sunshine and flower power for the cockheads. Most of the cockheads came from nothing, forever searching for pre-RuPaul fame. When they finally got a taste of it, their egos inflated. It was only a matter of time before some of them burst at the table. A number of queens that came into the show were serious, serious drag queens. And I never identified myself as a drag queen. I consider myself to this day an identity curator. So of course I left the bubble when I saw what the bubble had become, that it wasn't fun anymore, that these girls were taking themselves so seriously and became so competitive, tried to outdo each other and thought they really were in a Broadway show. The fun left, that's what happened. Bitching queens arguing about who was worth what began to take over the Cockettes weekly board meetings. The group's poor accounting practices left Rumi with only enough money from each show to buy fake eyelashes for the next one. Rumi and Hibiscus had had enough. We just put earplugs in and go in the kitchen and make cum bread. Unbeknownst to the rest of the Cockettes, Hibiscus would make his loads of bread and when it would come out of the oven, he would glaze the bread with his own semen. Hibiscus would serve it at the board of directors meeting to our managers, Sebastian, and the other coquettes while they were all bitch fighting. And mm, delicious, could you pass that marmalade? They would just lap it up, but they didn't know. The cum bread was the beginning of the end for the original members. A free flow of ideas, art, gender expression, living on the end of your imagination. Not setting a fire on the world, but a fire in your heart. 
the cockheads kicked out Hibiscus, and with them, Rumi and a couple of others followed. Hibiscus represented the old cockheads, free theater for the free world, an extension of the hippie life and ideology. I ended up very bitter. I did not speak about the group. I lost all my memorabilia. I didn't give a shit about the group until 25 years later when I jumped in the last final day of a three-day content 25-year anniversary. So I was kind of off the grid and really out of it and had nothing to do with the content, nor did I want to. Before Rumi was a cockette, he was a male groupie. Male groupies are an interesting and unique phenomenon in the history of California rock and roll. Rumi says the only group he ever got with was a gangbang with the Chambers Brothers. But all kidding aside, well, maybe not kidding aside, the groupie scene gave Rumi an early glimpse into stardom. Through the cockettes, he had later brushes with stars. Rumi says he was never impressed. He has stories about Truman Capote, Rex Reed, Iggy Pop, Jimmy Page, Allen Ginsberg, and of course Jim Morrison. He first met Jim Morrison when they performed in a play together in Berkeley, California in 1968. He later saw Jim Morrison in 1974, three years after he had died. I was in New Orleans. I was on my way back to California. I stuck out my thumb, and the first person that picked me up outside of New Orleans was Jim Morrison. He was on his way to a Led Zeppelin concert in Baton Rouge. He was all fat and had rapes on every finger and was driving a big old Cadillac. He said he wrote a book, and if I'd like to check it out, there was a whole box of them in the back seat. All I remember about the book was it had Jim Morrison's name on the cover and the words Bank of Louisiana. So if you Google Jim Morrison, Bank of Louisiana, you could find uh, a bunch of printouts about his alleged death and the whole that deal. A lot of people go to his grave at Père Lachaise in Paris and worship on his grave. He's not in there. He ain't even in there. Don't you get it? What did you ask him? We did talk about mutual friends we had, and they were all groupies. And I thought you were all people. So that's what we talked about. I didn't say, oh my God, you're dead, or anything like that. I thought you were dead. It was kind of freaky to me because in the last two weeks I was in New Orleans, I was there for four months. I became associated with death in two other ways. So it was death coming so close to death, not my own death, but two other people's death in New Orleans, which made me say, what the fuck am I doing here? I'm going back to California. And who's my first ride out of town? Jim Morrison. Rumi had been picked up by Jim Morrison on his way back home from New York City. You can't fly across the country without an ID, so Rumi had a hitchhike. Rumi lived in New York for three years after he left the Coquettes. To polish his star in his own way, he went to become someone that he couldn't be with the new Queenie Coquettes. Rumi learned a lot in New York when his fruitless last attempt to become famous failed. He had to readjust to the post-hippie San Francisco. There were no more free stores and his community had gone. I mean, for a while, I, I... I paid rent by, by working as a prep cook, a housekeeper, caterer, all those things. That's how, I, that's how I survived all those years. I didn't have SSI. 
I didn't have welfare. I didn't have any of that. I always stayed in hotels from the 70s until forever. I didn't have a bank account. I didn't have any savings. Where'd you keep your money? Under the pillow. To make matters worse, Rumi had no valid form of identification, no government record until he was 55 years old. Was a library card really your only form of identification? And what, what name did it say? Expired library card. What name did it say? Uh, probably Ruby Bishop because that was a date. I was forever. I became that person. I didn't use my real name for years and years and years for nothing. Rumi began to slip even lower. His three priorities in order were cigarettes, weed, and bills. For 50 years, I smoked marijuana and cigarettes. And I was very, very addicted to both. So I had no money. I was buying um, two eighths of green bud a week. An eighth was $60. So uh, I was spending $120 at least on green bud a week. So my diet was terrible. All I had money for was for food was uh, ramen and chicken franks. Rumi hadn't convinced himself to resurface above ground, but it was around this time that he found a new purpose a new passion that he would dedicate the remainder of his life to. He became the Cockett's archivist. Out of the ashes of their former archivist, Krima Ritz. I became the archivist by happenstance after Krima Ritz died, that I got all her shit, but then I lost the body. I had the will, and the will specifically said he didn't want to be cremated. So the city administrator cremated him, and I couldn't find the body. The sisters of perpetual indulgence were asking me, oh, would you like us to help with a funeral? I said, that's really cute and everything, just to roll up, but I can't find the fucking body. I finally get a number to call the Green Street Mortuary. The mortuary said, yes, we had him, but he's gone. I said, what do you mean he's gone? He said, well, he sent him to the cemetery, and if you'd like more information, call and very quietly ask for Gloria. So I call, hello, Gloria. And I said, uh, hi, I'd be a I'm the administrator for a power of attorney with Krima Riff, the dead cockat. Uh, is he there? And she says, why, you want him? I said, no, I just want to know what happened to the fucking body. Six months after I did that interview with Rumi, I went to his apartment. His attendant had just finished spring cleaning and laid out all the contents from his closet on the table. I asked him what he was hoarding and why he kept a 10-year-old Starbucks cup. He told me that's where I keep Krima's ashes. With his new passion, Rumi gained a new understanding of himself. He decided that he could no longer live on chicken franks and ramen. Midnight in Manhattan The cocktail shaker shaken for us What did it do to your spirit when you lived off the grid? Well, in one sense, it killed my spirit. I'm extremely uh, grateful that there was an intervention and I got my identity back. As a result of no identity, you are very limited in what you can do. I didn't have a birth certificate. I didn't have a family. None of that stuff was there for me. So I had to fend for myself, make my own nuclear family, which I did. I had to work under the counter, which I did. But I'm extremely grateful that I made the decision to get my identity back. But Timothy Leary's mantra was, uh, Tune in, turn on, and drop out. Okay, so I know I tuned in. I know I turned on, and I know I dropped out. But everyone else dropped back in. Even the most radical people, they dropped back in or died. Everyone. But I didn't drop back in. I stayed out. That didn't really harden me or make me mad or bitter. I just realized there were some things I couldn't do. I 
resign myself to never being able to travel to Europe. I thought, well, I'll never go see Europe in my lifetime. Too bad. And now look at me, I've been there three times. And now I've reunited with my family after 52 years. I like to say I took a wrong turn, got lost, and was too stubborn to ask for direction. That sums up my going off the grid. With Rumi's new identity came disability, mental disability. The psychiatrist Stephen said, why all these years you have to work history since you were 19 years old, camping at a bank in L.A., and you're 55 years old now. Where have you been? And I said, well, people took care of me because of who they thought I was. But they're all gone now. And by the way, could you leave the door open during this interview? He said, Steph, you got it. No one gets it the first time. Everyone has to repeal. I didn't have to repeal at all. I got it immediately for being crazy. Midnight in When I met Rumi, he was barely a hundred pounds. I had no idea what I'd be getting myself into. I'm sure he didn't either. I didn't know I would find a forever friend, someone who I know everything about. It's a heavy burden, but one lightened by love, holding someone's legacy in your brain and in a file cabinet under your desk. I remember when Rumi told me he had cancer. It was a gut punch. August 17, 2016, 8.24 p.m., Rumi Misabu told me he had cancer earlier. Now, Rumi is 300 pounds a result of his cancer-fighting drugs. He should have died years ago, dead, gone, forever. But Rumi is a survivor. Were you ever scared? Do you ever remember feeling scared or just alone and scared? Do you think of a moment? No, I've never been scared, never been alone, never been suicidal, because I'm always in love. And I think that's why. I've always put myself in love, whether it's consummated or not, or or whether it turns out to be uh, both ways or long-term. I haven't gone too many days without being in love with somebody or something. For the past 11 years, Rumi has come to New York, my home, to give people a gift a performance, a free dance attraction. He only leaves his house three times a year, to go to the doctor, to go to the hospital, and to come to New York. I'd like to open the show tonight with a song I did in the original Cockett show, Hollywood Babylon. This would be August 1970. Stranger in paradise, 
it took me to become disabled to become an artist again. What do you mean now, by that? What does that mean, Rumi? Up until I started doing shows, I had to support myself working as a domestic caterer and wasn't doing anything artistically. I had to support myself to keep a roof over my head. So what I'm saying is when I finally became disabled, I was able to stop working and become an artist again, but then go back to my true love, revisit it after all these years. It's not like I had a career. The last artistic thing that I did after I came back from New York is only 77. And then I had no more artistic outlets until, you know, I got back into the fold and became disabled. That's it. Because by being disabled, it freed me up. It gave me, it gave me the time to do that. And it gave me some kind of money, regular income. Of a stranger in paradise, and tell me that I be a stranger no more. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to let everyone know how fabulous I am tonight. I saw Rumi perform that song his voice weak from cigarettes, hoarse from emphysema. As soon as Rumi gets on a stage, he's willing to give it his all, even when it hurts. What do you want the cockheads to be remembered for? What do you want their contribution to be known as? I think that's up to the individual. I have a personal legacy that includes the cockheads. I I'm bound to determine in my own way to keep that spirit alive of the Cockettes, which I do to this day. What's the spirit of the Cockettes? Well, free theater, radical theater, uh, all that stuff. Unpolished. It's okay, I tell my company to this day, if the scenery falls over. It's okay if your wig falls off during the show. It's okay. I don't believe in auditioning, which I don't do. And the Cockettes didn't either. I'm not looking for, for professional dancers or singers. I'm not looking for that. I figure if you could talk, you could sing. If you could walk, you could dance. Or fake it. And that's what I did. It was all about, it's all about faking. And that's half the, half the battle in theater is just to fake it. For the 35 years that Rumi was underground after he was a Cockette, he didn't give himself enough credit. But when he was 20 years old, there was a telling sign he knew what he was on to. He told Rolling Stone magazine, I think I'm performing gay liberation through my art. Notice the word think. I say, I think I'm performing gay liberation through my art. That was 1970. I don't know why I use the word think. I'm not confident enough, maybe back then. I'm not sure of myself. I don't know, I'm young. Now, I know I am, or no, I did, or whatever. Now I know, I'm sure I did. To my dear Rumi, and to all of our listeners, you are loved. This is August from the Queer Core Podcast. I want to thank all of you and our sponsor, Five Burrows Brewery, for helping bring this project to life. Our next episode will feature Reverend Troy Perry, founder of the Metropolitan Community Church, the first gay church in America that now has over 40,000 members across the world. The Queer Core Podcast is produced by Chris Coates and myself, and edited by Chris Coates. 
Our theme song is Silicon Valley by Silka Berlin and the Addictions. The song Violence is also by Silka Berlin. Bambi Lake performed Midnight in Manhattan, written by Scrumbly and Martin Warman, and Jaded Lady, written by Scrumbly and Link Martin. The audio from She Freak comes courtesy of Something Weird Video. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. To stay up to date with the Queer Core podcast, please follow us on Instagram at the LGBTQ History Project or visit our website, QueerCorePod.com. But more importantly, please share and tag us with the hashtag QueerCorePodcast. Until next time, peace out.